Thanks for joining us today. We're glad you're here with us. As we take a look at God's Word, we're going to be in Psalm 103 together. Feel free to turn there. And as you do, let me pray for us as we look at God's Word. Father, thank you for your kindness toward us in Christ that while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. May you fill us with hope, with joy, with perseverance, with that eternal and heavenly perspective. Even as we turn to your word, we ask that you might open our eyes, you might open our hearts, allow us to understand your kindness and your greatness in a new way together today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to picture this. It's February of 1918, and the Great War, the war to end all wars, is about six months away from being completed. We know it as World War I, but there was a reason that they called it the war to end all wars, because the fighting had been horrific in Europe. And some countries were hit harder than others. Think of France, for example. By the end of the war, some one million men had lost their lives, and 400,000 others were listed as missing in action. That's a number that's difficult for us to even comprehend. But it's February, and for some reason, the Germans sent one of these lost soldiers that they had come across back to France. Sent him on a train, and he landed in, in Lyon, France. Now, something wasn't quite right. It was clear to the bystanders that something wasn't quite going right for this young man, for the soldier. And they approached him and, and began asking him questions and engaging in conversation. It was clear that he had no idea where he was. He had no idea who he was. He didn't remember his name, didn't remember any details about himself. And when they began to press him uh, for maybe information or for baggage, for identification, he had nothing. He was the quintessential lost soldier. He was diagnosed with dementia because of the trauma of the war and was placed in an asylum to be forgotten. But then at the end of the war, the French authorities wanted to discover who this man belonged to. So they published his picture in the papers, hoping that his family might come forward and claim this lost soldier. But the opposite effect happened. Hundreds of potential relatives came forward, claiming this man as a brother, as a father, as a son, as an uncle. And maybe we can imagine what that would be like. Think of the hundreds of thousands of families that had experienced loss in the war, they were just trying to reclaim something that they'd lost. But it took the court 20 years to discern who this man's actual family was. And by the time they figured it out, his father and his brother, who he didn't even recognize, had passed away. And this lost soldier was left alone to die in, in a sane asylum, supposedly of malnutrition. It's not what I'd call a happy story, is it? And our pop culture might have fun with amnesia. Think of the Bourne series, for example, or our favorite Disney Pixar fish, Dory. But if you and I are being honest, amnesia is terrifying. I mean, imagine what it would be like to wake up in the morning tomorrow and, and not remember our name, to not remember where we are, not remember who we are, not remember our family, our favorite restaurant, our favorite ice cream, nothing. Everything is erased. It's terrifying. But I'm convinced that each one of us are predisposed towards amnesia. I'm not talking about retrograde amnesia from an injury or psychological amnesia from trauma. I'm talking about something far more subtle, but it might be just as dangerous in our lives. I'm talking about spiritual amnesia. 
Each one of us have the disposition, the tendency in our own flesh to forget the Lord, to forget how good He's been, to forget His faithfulness and His kindness and His goodness in our lives. And that might not sound like a big deal, but one pastor put it like this, spiritual forgetfulness is the first long step towards spiritual disaster. And when we look at God's Word, I think we know that to be true. I mean, think of the people of Israel, for example. Look at, look at the book of Judges. After Joshua and the generation with him had passed away, there arose a new generation, the text says, that neither knew the Lord nor knew what he'd done for Israel. They forgot the Lord. But the Lord knew about that temptation in their life, so he built some barriers. He built some rumble strips to, pri- to, to try to prevent them from forgetting him. Remember when they crossed the Jordan River and God held back the waters at flood stage and they crossed over the bottom of the the riverbed on dry ground and God commands them to take those 12 huge stones, those 12 huge boulders and to place them on the side of the river as a monument for generations to come that God had rescued them, that he'd saved them, that he'd provided for them, that he cared about them and loved them. But as the generations progressed, the monument on the side of the Jordan River just became a pile of stones. And the people forgot what the Lord had done. And their spiritual forgetfulness, it led to idolatry as they began to worship the gods of the Canaanites and the people in the land. And their idolatry then led to discipline and punishment from the Lord. You and I, we might not be worshiping golden cows in our backyard, but I'm convinced there's idols in our life. Could be any number of things. Popularity, materialism, occupation, relationships, But idolatry is step two. We need to rewind and think about step one is spiritual forgetfulness, not remembering what God has been doing in our life. And there's a lot of things that might contribute to that sort of forgetfulness in our culture today, but I want to think about two. The first is busyness. There's this tendency for us to be busy, to fill our schedules. And in some ways, our culture places value on us when we're busy, when our lives are full But sometimes what happens when we're busy, it's easy to forget the Lord. Bible reading and prayer get chopped off the schedule. Spending time with our church family and community gets chopped off the schedule, and we begin to forget what God is doing in and around us. We're busy. And if we're not busy, we're most certainly distracted. Let me prove it to you. What do we do? What do I do when I'm in line at the grocery store and it's taking too long? Pull out my phone. Begin checking emails, replying to text messages, scrolling through Facebook or Instagram? What might someone do at a long stoplight? Do the same thing. What might you do on a long summer day when it's too hot to play outside? Maybe you pull out the Xbox. We're distracted by work conflicts. We're distracted by the news. We're distracted by our hobbies. We're distracted by any number of things. But when we fill our mind with all of those things, then it's so easy for us to forget the Lord. There's not that much time in our life where we're still. Oftentimes we're busy. Oftentimes we're distracted. And and that can lead to spiritual forgetfulness. That's the bad news. You and I are each predisposed towards that genetic condition called spiritual amnesia. And that spiral is the same in our life. Forgetfulness leads to idolatry, which leads to discipline from the Lord. And none of us want to be subject to God's discipline. Here's the good news. God in His grace and in His love for us has provided an antidote. He's provided a cure for spiritual amnesia. And if you had to take a stab, what might you think 
that antidote would be. Bible reading, prayer, spending time in community, going to church. Those are great things. Don't get me wrong. I'm convinced there's something even greater. There's an even stronger cure for spiritual amnesia. And it's just one word. Praise. It's all over our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 103. You'll notice the subscription says, of David. We have to know that those subscriptions, they weren't inspired. They were written some hundreds of years after the Psalms were written. But it does give us an indication that David was probably the author. Scholars are divided. Some think he wrote it. Some think he didn't. But when I look at the context, or the content rather, of the psalm, David certainly knew God's love. He knew his forgiveness as the way the the psalmist describes. I think it's safe for us to assume he's the author. But when we think about the psalms in general, we, we have to remember that the psalms were the hymnal of the people of Israel. And this was one of the praise songs that they would sing when they gathered together with the congregation to worship the Lord. So let's read the first two verses. It sets the stage for our psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The Hebrew word bless could also be translated as praise. It's definitely what it means anytime we see it in connection with worshiping the Lord. And David is, is talking to himself. This is a second person command, commanding his own soul to praise the Lord. And he says, not part of me, but all that's within me. Helping us understand that worship isn't just a, a head thing. It's not just a heart thing. It takes all of us, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, our spiritual act of worship. And David commands himself to praise the Lord. So how would you and I define praise? It's quite simple. Praise is our response to the greatness and the goodness of God. Praise is our response to the greatness and the goodness of God. And I think we know that to be true experientially in our life. When we experience something great, when we experience something good, then we respond. If we're on a trip and maybe we're at a national park or or a state park and we see something beautiful, what do we do? We respond by taking a picture. If we're enjoying a a great piece of dessert, well, what do we do? We probably have another piece. We enjoy some more. If our team wins the championship, what do we do? We, We post about it on social media. If someone gives us an incredible gift, what do we do? Well, we respond by saying thank you, or we respond by using the gift, or we respond by publicly acknowledging the gift that they've given to us. When we experience something great, we respond. And it's the same when we think on, when we experience the greatness and the goodness of the Lord in our life, then we must respond with praise. You see what David's doing. He knows he's busy. He knows he's distracted. He he knows that he's predisposed towards forgetting what God has done. So he takes a step back in his life, and he commands his own soul. He's literally talking to himself and says, David, Take some time to praise the Lord. Don't forget what he's done in your life. Which gives us a clue on the nature of praise. David helps us understand that praise, it's not always going to be natural. We're not going to wake up every morning at 6 a.m. with that natural inclination to just start singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
Praise might not be natural. It's not always going to be easy. It's not just going to be spontaneous. Sometimes praise takes work. It takes intentionality. We need to practice praise, intentionally thinking on God's goodness, thinking on His greatness, His kindness towards us, and responding with worship, telling Him how great He is, maybe singing to Him, talking to others about what He's done, praying and and praising God for His kindness and His goodness in our lives. And as David continues this psalm, he takes time to remember God's specific acts of kindness and goodness in his life. And I trust that we're going to be encouraged by all of God's blessings that don't just apply to David. They can apply to you and me as well. Let me keep reading verse 3. The Lord, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Five promises in three verses. Quite amazing. The Lord, who forgives not some, not most, but all your iniquity. Amazing. David knew the power of God's forgiveness. He was a man at times of his life who struggled deeply with sin, didn't he? He committed adultery and then tries to cover it up with murder and thinks that he gets away with it until the prophet Nathan comes and exposes the sin of David's heart and and he responds with this humble repentance and pleads of the Lord to offer forgiveness and God pardons his sin and restores his relationship with David. Amazing. Now you and I may not be adulterers, we might not be murderers, but think of how Jesus defines each of those sins. Hate in one's heart, murder. Lust in one's heart, adultery. By that standard, certainly each of us are guilty. And when we think on the chasm, the the gap between God's infinite holiness and our imperfections, that's a gap none of us could even dream to cross. Even the good things that we do, Isaiah tells us, are like filthy rags. None of us are good. But what does David say? The Lord forgives all your iniquities. What a promise. That through the cross, there is no sin too great that the cross cannot cover. Praise the Lord. Well, think of promise two, who heals all your diseases. I think I've used the word disease more times in the last six months than I have in my whole life. What a relevant promise for our world today. The Lord heals all your diseases. But we think of God's healing power, we have to think beyond just an earthly perspective. Think of it this way. It was a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of attending a memorial service for a man, I'll, I'll call him Jimmy. Now, Jimmy had developmental delay and passed away in his 50s. He was nonverbal for his whole life and had a number of, of medical conditions. But every time his family or his friends came up to him and asked him about Jesus, he would point to his heart and he'd get this huge smile on his face. He believed in Jesus, loved Jesus. And think of what he's doing right now. Maybe he's running laps around the throne, praising God with his voice. God has healed his diseases. What a promise for each of us when we have that relationship with Christ. No matter the pain, the struggle, the medical condition, the suffering in our life, the day is coming when all of it will be healed, when we're with God forever in eternity. 
And if we're struggling with pain or with disease this side of heaven, do we ask for a miracle? Absolutely. We can ask God to do the work of healing in our lives, but we have to trust as followers of Christ that ultimate healing for any of us will come in eternity. The Lord heals all your diseases. Think of the next promise. He redeems your life from the pit. The pit, synonym of Sheol or or hell in the Old Testament, literally God has bought us back. He's redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's redeemed us from eternity separated from Him in a literal place called hell. What a promise. What a gift. As He continues, says this, He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Maybe some of us have dreamt about what it would be like to be a king or a queen. David knew what that was like. He was the king. He knew what it felt like to have that diadem placed upon his head and be proclaimed as royalty. But what David's saying is that he had to pick between being the king and being crowned with God's steadfast love. He'd pick God's love 10 out of 10 10 10 times. Why? Because an earthly king is just crowned king for a lifetime. When God places his steadfast love on us, he makes us feel like royalty for an eternity. What a promise. And he satisfies us with good things, as the NIV says. What a promise that we can find satisfaction in God and in God alone. We know the fruitless toil of trying to find satisfaction in God's creation. Does money satisfy? Never completely. It always leaves us wanting more. Does stuff, does materialism satisfy? No, it leaves us wanting more. Do human relationships, does intimacy satisfy? Never completely. But what David is is saying is that God has given us the opportunity, the privilege of when we place him in that top spot in our life, when we try to find our satisfaction in him and him alone, we will be satisfied. But when we try to find our satisfaction in anything else, anything that God's created, it's like a hamster on a hamster wheel. We're just going to keep toiling without ever getting anywhere. But we can find satisfaction in the Lord and in the Lord alone. What an amazing gift. And these lists of gifts that David lists, God is lavish in his gift giving. He is abounding in his steadfast love. He's not a stingy gift giver. He gives abundantly. And we might ask, do these gifts apply to everyone? And how might these apply to us? Well, certainly, these gifts are available to anyone, but they don't apply to everyone. They can't apply to you. They can apply to me only through what Jesus has done on the cross. Because the bad news is that we're sinful. We're separated from God. We're born God's enemies. There's no way we could earn eternity in heaven by what we do because none of us are even close to good enough. But God in his grace sent Jesus into the world who lived that perfect life we could, even, we could never dream of living. And he died in our place on the cross. And he rose on the third day, conquering sin and conquering death. That if anyone would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, would believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, then he would be saved. If you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never turned away from your sin and trust in Christ, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then don't delay. Eternity is weighing in the balance. It's the most important decision that you can make. But when we have that relationship with Christ, when we do turn from our sin and trust in Christ for our salvation, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and lives inside of us. And these promises, they apply to us, not by anything that we've done, but completely by God's grace and his mercy toward us 
in Christ. Amazing. And when we think on the goodness of the gospel, when we think on God's kindness toward us, then we have to respond in praise. And that's our first principle today. Praise the Lord personally. Praise the Lord personally. If we looked at our life over the last week, last month, how's our personal praise? You know, that that one-on-one thing between us and God, telling Him how great He is, praying and, and praising Him for His goodness toward us. Well, here's a litmus test maybe to see how we're doing. If somebody came up to you this afternoon and came up to me this afternoon and asked a simple question, what's God been doing in your life? What has God been teaching you recently? And we don't have an answer. That might mean we're struggling with spiritual amnesia. But I know for each of us, there is room for us to grow in our personal praise, our personal worship. When we think of praise, we think of worship, we often think of music. Praise and worship doesn't have to be music, but it can be connected to music. And I find music one of the most powerful ways to praise the Lord. And it doesn't just have to be at church, at a church service. We can be driving down the road, listening to worship playlists, singing at the top of our lungs. Or maybe even before we're going to bed at night, we, we listen to those hymns that allow us to reflect on God's kindness and His goodness in our life. But even beyond music, when we pray and, and spend time with the Lord, instead of just asking Him for things, we need to praise Him, thank Him for His goodness, tell Him how great He is, thank Him for His gifts toward us in Christ. And maybe we can even take time to, to journal, to write down some of the ways that God has been kind and gracious toward us. A couple weeks ago, I pulled out some old things that I'd written five years ago, eight years ago, things that God had been doing in my life. And it was amazing. I, I was remembering stories I'd forgotten. I was being reminded of God's faithfulness in ways that I'd forgotten. And it, it, it encouraged my faith. It built my faith, remembering that God had been gracious in the past, knowing that He's going to be gracious in the, in the present, and trusting His faithfulness in the future. When we write down what God's doing, then we have those stones, that rock of remembrance to go back to, to grow our faith so that we don't forget what God has been doing in our life. May each one of us grow in our personal praise. But one of the best things, one of the, I think the coolest things about our relationship with God is yes, there's this individual element, but there's also this together element. Because when we become a Christian, we're adopted into God's family. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we experience God's kindness toward us on a personal level, then we can respond to Him on a corporate level, together praising and extolling Him in community. I think we know what that feels like with a nuclear family. I think of my family, for example. I have four brothers. And there's a special thing that happens when I have that one-on-one time with my dad. It's great. I love that time when we get that together. But something unique, something special happens when all five of us brothers are with my dad. It's hard to explain it's in, in words that dynamic, but it's special. And the same thing happens in our church family, that when we gather together to praise the Lord, to, to publicly declare how great He is and sing to Him, something special happens that we can't even necessarily put into words. That's our second principle, right from our psalm today. Praise the Lord publicly. Praise the Lord publicly. It's interesting. The language changes as David continues. He moves away from that second person talking to himself, but he starts to use some different words. We, our, and us. The picture of he's addressing the whole church family, extolling them to praise 
the Lord. And he continues, let me read verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What a promise. God's merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve, punishment. He's, he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and reconciliation and a new relationship. He's slow to anger. He's patient, right? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And he's abounding. He's literally overflowing in his steadfast love. His love's not going to run out. And this is a unique word in the Hebrew, steadfast love, Hebrew word hesed. This idea of, of covenant loyalty, that his faithfulness to his people doesn't depend on their faithfulness, but it's based on his covenant, his commitment toward them. The same is true of us. When we have a relationship with God, when our sins are forgiven, when we receive the promised Holy Spirit, then there's nothing that can separate us from God's love, not even our own sin. Our performance doesn't change how much God loves us. Now, that's not an excuse for us to sin and and abuse God's grace. No, God's kindness is meant to lead us towards repentance. But instead, it's so comforting to know that nothing separates us from God's love. Not even death itself can separate us from His love. What an amazing promise. And as he continues, verse 9, the Lord will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our iniquities. It's an interesting word in verse 9, isn't it? Chide. It just means to accuse. And the Lord might not be an accuser, but we know who is. Satan, our enemy. He's an accuser. He's called the accuser of the brothers. And we know what that sounds like. Those thoughts in our mind sound like this. You could never be good enough to earn God's love. Those sins you've committed, that's beyond God's forgiveness. If everyone here knew what you've done, they'd never love you. They wouldn't even like you. God could never love you. Maybe we've heard those thoughts before. That's not from God. That's from the enemy. But what does David say? He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. And to grasp God's love, to somehow grasp his forgiveness, he uses a couple metaphors. Let me read verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. For David, there was nothing higher than the heavens. There's the highest, the tallest imaginable thing. That's how great God's love is for his people. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What a picture. If I, from Wausau today, started walking east, assuming I could walk on water, I'd be walking east for the rest of my life. The same is true if we started walking west. The distance between east and west is infinite. That's the picture David's providing. If Jesus met us here today and and just imagine him taking our sin in his hand and walking one direction to the east, and then we started walking the other direction to the west, the the gap is, is infinite. That's how far he removes our sin from us. What a picture. Verse 13, as the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I'm new to this whole dad thing. But some of us have experienced that feeling when you hold your son or your daughter for the first time. And it's hard to put into words the love that a mom or a dad has for their children. 
Now, has that child done anything to earn God or earn their parents' love? No. But that doesn't change parents' love for their children. And that's the metaphor David is, is using, one of the strongest loves that we can even think of. We haven't earned God's love. We haven't deserved his love, but he loves us as a father loves his children. What an amazing picture. And when we think on God's love, when we think on his kindness toward us, then we have to respond in praise. And that happens together. I mean, one of the best things that we can do is gather together, virtually or, or literally, and, and sing and, and listen to God's word and praise him together. Just think of some of the powerful lyrics that we've already sang together today. Hallelujah. Praise the one who rescued me. Sin has lost its grip on me. Or in Christ alone, my hope is found. That he's conquered sin and death once and for all. Think on even the songs that we get to sing together. But beyond that, we don't need to use music to publicly praise the Lord. It can sound simple. It can sound something just like this. Did you see that sunset tonight? Wow, God is good. Or oh, just a couple days ago, I was, I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew about the transfiguration. Can you just imagine seeing Jesus in, in his glory like the disciples did? Wow, God is good. It could sound like this. You know, our family has been praying over this prayer request for the last year, and just this week, God answered our prayer. Wow, God is good. May we be a church family that continually and regularly praises the Lord publicly for his kindness to us. Now, as David continues, he uses a couple more metaphors, but they're not quite as encouraging. Verse 15, uh, verse 14 rather, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. And as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over and it's gone and its place knows it no more. I think sometimes we think that we're really important that the world needs us. But David just compared us to a piece of dust, a piece of grass, and a dead flower. You think it might be sobering in 100 years and 200 years, who's going to remember us? Probably not too many people. When we think in earthly terms, we're going to be forgotten like a dead flower that is blown away by the wind in a, in a field. Nobody remembers that, right? That's the earthly value placed on our life is what David's saying, but it's a contrast when we think of God's love for us in verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, on those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's the value that God has placed on us. When we have his steadfast love, when we're adopted into his family, his covenant, his promise is from everlasting to everlasting. Not even death can separate us from God's love. I mean, think about the strongest covenant that we know, the side of heaven. Most certainly is marriage, right? And when that couple comes to the front and they declare their love and they make those vows to each other, what's the last line of their vow? Till death do us part. Even the strongest covenant that we know with this side of heaven ends at death. But God's love for us 
will never end. It's eternal. It's from everlasting to everlasting. There's no expiration date. There's no end to the contract. God's promise to love us forever. We have eternal value. We have eternal hope. We have eternal worth. That's our final principle. Praise the Lord eternally. Praise the Lord eternally. Because you and I are going to be experiencing God's kindness, His goodness, His greatness forever. It's not just an earthly thing, that's an eternal thing. And if we're going to be doing that forever, that's our eternal vocation, praising the Lord, then we might as well start practicing today. May we be a church family that praises the Lord personally and publicly and eternally. When I look at my life, I need this. It's so easy to be distracted. It's so easy to be busy and to forget the Lord and not even realize that we're forgetting. All of us are prone to struggle with spiritual amnesia. None of us are immune, but God has given us a cure, an antidote, and it's praise. And think about what this might look like in a church family that is passionate about praising the Lord. Imagine walking through the halls on a Sunday morning and and overhearing conversation after conversation about what God was up to that week. And imagine being part of a church family that so engages in, in corporate worship that we're not just singing out of obligation, but we're singing because we have the opportunity to praise God together. Amazing. Imagine being part of life groups or, or care groups or small groups or Bible studies that spend more time in praise reports than prayer requests. Imagine being part of our church family where, where families are taking time during the week to praise the Lord in their homes. Because when we praise, we persevere. When we praise, it fills us with joy. When we praise, it gives us a perspective beyond the pain and the struggle and the trials of this life because we're thinking on the goodness of God. When we praise, we're not going to give in to spiritual amnesia because we're intentionally thinking on the goodness of God. May we be a church family that praises the Lord personally, publicly, and eternally. Let's pray. Father, if we were just to list all of the reasons we have to praise you, we'd be here a long time. You've been so kind and gracious to us, not by anything that we've deserved or earned, but completely by your grace. May we rest in your grace and in your forgiveness today. Father, we need you, and we are so thankful for your love for us, that you've given us an eternal hope when we believe in Christ. Encourage us to walk faithfully with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.